Good afternoon or good evening, depending uh, what time it is in the um, location you're watching this. But welcome to this panel discussion, which is part of the LEC programme on Brexit. And today, our panel discussion focuses on Brexit and culture wars, with the question, is this a new normal? So we're going to be discussing the uh, extent to which we've seen a culture change in British politics, and the extent to which Brexit is a consequence or a trigger of this culture shift. And we have an expert panel to guide us through this very important uh, discussion. First of all, my colleague, Professor Sarah Hobolt uh, from the Department of Government uh, will uh, begin with her presentation. We'll then follow with Professor John Denham, who is Director of the Centre for English Identity and politics at the University of Southampton, and of course, a former Labour cabinet minister as well. And third, but uh, by no means least, Jaminda Gianetti uh, is a well-known journalist who has been published in The Guardian, The Independent, and The Observer, uh, and many other uh, locations as well. They each bring their different perspectives on this question of Brexit and culture wars. We've invited our panellists to speak to us for between seven and ten minutes to make opening statements. We'll then have a discussion amongst us and we'll be opening it up to you, the audience, for your uh, questions. You can send us your questions through the Zoom chat facility at the bottom of your uh, screen. Uh, there's also a hashtag uh, for the uh, event, which is uh, hashtag LSEBrexit. So do please send us your comments, whether you're watch, uh, watching on Facebook or uh, via this uh, webinar. Uh, so we have a great topic this evening, Brexit and culture wars. Is this your new normal? Sarah Hobart. Thank you, Kevin, and uh, good evening, uh, everyone. Uh, well, I, maybe I should start by saying that um, I'm not sure I love the term culture war. First of all, I think maybe these are not the times where we should import anything uh, from the US. And of course, we know that this is very much a, a term that is being used in the US. And also, I think that uh, the last uh, sort of six months of this pandemic have shown us that we're not a nation you know, at war. In fact, we very much uh, came together. So, so I think we should be careful about using that sort of terminology. Nonetheless, what I'm going to be arguing is that we have seen the emergence of a Brexit divide over the last four years and, and some, and we have, seen, uh, we have seen some polarization along that divide. So I would look at that a little bit. So I'll share some of the evidence from uh, political science uh, that, that gives that. So I'll show you some slides to just kick off that discussion. So if it comes up there. So as you can see, I've sort of slightly uh, retitled the thing, the emergence of this Brexit divide. And one thing, of course, that's well known is that the electorate is split over Brexit. And in fact, this, this quite even split has, is still existing now, even after we've left, uh, formally left the European Union. So one of, the, one of the many questions that tap into this in surveys is the question of, in hindsight, do you think Britain was right or wrong to leave the European Union? And we, think, we see that people still have you know, opinions on that and that it's quite an even split, albeit with a, with a slight majority of people who think it was wrong for us to leave the European Union, even now that we have left. 
Um, the thing is that that was not meant necessarily meant to be this split. It was not a sort of issue that was deeply salient to people before the referendum was called. It's worth remembering now when we've had Brexit for so many years that prior to the referendum being called, uh, if we go back to the time of the two, 2010 and 2015 general elections, this was not even amongst the top 20 issues uh, that voters cared about. So I think most of the evidence suggests that it, this was very much a sort of top-down polarization that started that way and then became a, an issue that divided the public. So while it wasn't always, always a salient issue to, to, to British people, it certainly became one. And I would even argue that the evidence suggests that it has become something of a social identity based on people's uh, Brexit identities. The referendum, of course, was a trigger for this, the campaign itself, and also the aftermath of the ongoing negotiations within Britain and with the EU. And also the fact that the vote compelled people to take sides. You were either a Lever or Brexiteer or you were a Remainer. Another thing that made this a new divide was, of course, that it divided, uh, even it cut across parties, especially if we go back to 2016, the two major parties were deeply divided on the issue, also when we looked at their supporters. One of the things I've looked at in my research is that this really spilled over from being something more than just uh, a disagreement over politics, a disagreement over EU, to what we call effective polarization, that you felt like you're attached to your in-group, in this case being a Remain or a Lever, and also that you feel hostility towards the out-group. And um, if, for example, if we ask people whether or not they identify with an in-group using a sort of standard question from the partisanship literature, we do find that uh, about three quarters of people feel, will say they identify as either Remainers or Leavers. Uh, and that has remained quite high, I think perhaps surprisingly high, even after we left the European Union. Research also shows that these identities were more strongly held than partisan identities. So people were more inclined to say they were leavers or remainers than they were Labour supporters or Conservative supporters. And they were also more inclined to say they held these identities more strongly. So we know that those kind of political identities, while they have positive effects, they also have all sorts of um, they also have all sorts of consequences, particularly in that it leads, it biases how people view the world. So we know that, for example, now if you're a conservative supporter, you're more likely to view the economy more positively, or certainly the prospects. And similarly, Brexit created this divide in how we view the world. So Remainers at the moment are much more negative about the economy and about uh, economic prospects than Leavers. But perhaps more worryingly, these identities also led to, uh, to prejudice and stereotyping of the outgroup, so the group that you don't belong to. And just to give you a sort of a snapshot of the evidence on this, uh, we ran a kind of standard prejudice uh, barometer sort of question serving, uh, questionnaire on prejudice, where we simply asked people uh, what, is, what are the sort of characteristics of leavers and remainers. And what we see here is that Remainers will think that fellow Remainers are generally intelligent, open-minded, and honest, and they're more likely to think that leavers are selfish, hypocritical, and close-minded. And we see the mirror image uh, with leavers. So there's not a sort of so basically that suggests that these sort of uh, political identities spill in spill over into how we also look at fellow citizens. Um, so of course. 
in the last six months, we haven't heard a lot about Brexit, unless, you know, you really pay a lot of attention. It certainly hasn't been, you know, front page news every day the way it was uh, for almost four years. But there are some suggestions that this could reemerge as a salient political divide. One thing is, if you look at the right-hand figure here, uh, and this is the most recent survey from Ipsos Mori that looks at the most important issues facing Britain today. And what we see here, this is from September uh, 2020, so very recently, and Brexit actually comes in as the second most important issue with half the population mentioning that as one of the most important issues after, of course, coronavirus. So that suggests it hasn't sort of entirely disappeared from, from, from people's minds. Another thing that's perhaps more worrying is that there's also um, some evidence suggesting that there's not what we would normally call loser's consent, that Remainers, or certainly a large proportion of Remainers, have not accepted that, um, uh, that the decision uh, to leave the European Union was based on a fair and democratic pro uh, process. So, you know, the, a, a big thing in democracy is, of course, that even if you're on the losing side, you think, well, at least it was a fair and democratic process, and then uh, you accept the result on that basis. And if we ask that question, and we asked that back in February 2020, we can see that over half Remainers answered no to that question that's in the left-hand figure. Now, you might ask, well, Brexit has sort of happened, it's done, um, and so why, uh, why, is, uh, why is it still so salient to people? Well, one reason is, of course, that it's highly aligned with, and this is where I come back to the, to the title of, of this webinar, it's highly aligned with other cultural values or another cultural divide in, in British uh, society. And this figure is, is a bit complicated, but let me just, I wanted to show it to you anyway, and let me just sort of quickly summarize it. So what that shows are people who identify as conservative in blue and labor in red. And it shows how divided or how united they are on across a number of issues, depending on whether they're leavers or remainers. And, um, and if we start from the bottom, and the, the bigger the bars, the, the larger the divisions between remainers and leavers. And what it shows is that at the, at all the economic issues are at the bottom, so redistribution, unemployment, nationalization, and the role of unions, they're all economic issues. And we find very small divisions within parties between leavers and remainers. On the other hand, on what we might normally term cultural issues, we find bigger differences between leavers and remainers within the same parties. So on issues like immigration, sentencing, death penalty, censorship, names, we find that generally remainers are much more what we would call progressive than leavers. So that suggests that there's a sort of cultural divide which is aligned with Brexit, but it's not about the EU as such that exists within society, but also within the two major parties and will exist therefore, you know, regardless of the government we have. So let me conclude therefore with just summing up some of, some of the evidence. So Brexit, I think has emerged as a powerful division and political identity in the UK. There's a lot of evidence on that in the social sciences. And there's also evidence that it's resulted in biases and also outgroup prejudice. There is some realignment that's occurred over the last four years. By that, I mean that the Conservatives have become a much more Brexity party, so to speak, uh, and, and Labour has become more Remain. Brexit, of course, is more, much less salient now uh, since the pandemic, um, but the underlying Brexit division, um, which, of course, I didn't talk about this here, but are related to sociodemographic divisions such as age, education and geography, but also to cultural values, as I tried to show, they're likely to persist. One just final thing to remember is that not all cultural values are salient. 
we saw how Brexit became very salient because of what I would think is sort of a top-down process. But other issues such as, for example, death penalty that really divide leavers and remainers is not necessarily an issue that's going to be mobilized or matter to voters. And I think there's every reason to be that in the next couple of years, the economy is going to be a highly salient issue and perhaps much more salient than some of these cultural, um, cultural issues given what we are facing with the pandemic. So uh, let me end it there. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, very much indeed. That's got us off to a nice start. So um, Sarah's not keen on the phrase culture war, but uh, she's happy to talk about cultural uh, shift. Uh, I like very much her point that uh, Brexit was a top-down uh, polarisation, a top-down trigger uh, for uh, questions of uh, tensions over identity and uh, cultural uh, values. Uh, so um, Brexit uh, had an effect rather than being the consequence of pre-existing changes. Also her graph showing that EU membership was not a tremendously salient issue until just before the EU referendum is very important in the context of our discussion as to whether Brexit was a cause or an effect of cultural uh, shifts. So uh, let's now go to uh, John Denham uh, for his comments. Please, John. Thank you very much and uh, very pleased to be with you. Um, I'm going to say, follow some of the same things that Sarah said and put a different emphasis on some others. Um, so the implication of the title is that we are divided and will politics continue to be divided? Um, I thought I'd start with a thought experiment. So imagine a political scientist coming from, say, Mars to study English values and attitudes, examining, as political scientists do, where we sit on a left to right scale, a liberal authoritarian scale, um, on what I would argue should be there, though it usually isn't a national identity stroke democracy sovereignty scale. Uh, and some other issues. The thing is that no one tells our Martian political scientist about Brexit. So they don't ask any questions about uh, Brexit. To what extent would they find a nation that was divided into uh, two tribes? Well, let me share just a few slides. Um, oops. Hopefully you can see that. So if they ask questions in this British election study about economic values from left to right, well, there's a bit of a blip up at the far left area there, but generally it's a smooth uh, distribution. Uh, no sign of two separate groups with widely dispersed views on the economy, centering somewhere to the left of centre on economic issues. Um, if we looked at on what's called the libertarian authoritarian axis or the uh, liberal socially conservative axis, very similar. It's a smooth distribution uh, centering to the right of centre on the authoritarian side of things. If we looked at a slightly different one, and this, we don't really have a national democracy slide, but I've looked at identity here. We look on the Merino scale at identities in England. We find the largest single group is equally English and British. There are rather more to the English side of that spectrum than the British side. That's the one thing that is interesting is that the line there, which is the extent to which people identify as European, was a pretty good indicator of whether people would vote leave or remain, suggesting that actually the issue in the referendum did have quite a bit to do with what people thought about the European Union. 
if we took the issue of immigration and diversity, which is often held up as the sort of cultural issue in the referendum, this is the from the anti-fascist group Hope Not Hate. And what you see in the dark blue is the confident multiculturalists. And you go around the circle to the grey at the bottom, the immigration ambivalence, which is, yes, OK, immigration is fine, but I've got worries about it through to the active enmity. Again, we don't get a sense here that this is a nation divided into two camps on these issues. It's a spread of views across the spectrum. Um, just gonna stop the sharing a moment while I make a few more remarks. So the question then is, given that it's not obvious that you can see different poles of views of people, poles apart from each other, why do we think we're divided into the Brexit tribes that Sarah's talking about? Why is it that the one I like, 37% of Remainers um, say they wouldn't like a member of their family to marry a Leaver? Um, the Leavers are much less intolerant. I think it's only about 17% of Leavers would say the same about their family. Well, I very much agree, Sarah, this is a top-down thing. Brexit imposed a binary divide. You had to be on one side or the other. There was even now, and even now, a substantial middle ground on views on Brexit. Uh, Remainers who didn't like the EU very much, leavers who were worried about it. But on a binary choice, voters do come from different parts of the value scales. And if you take the same sets of voters and ask them about other issues, they will appear to be polarized on those other issues as well. So it's quite easy to, and I agree with Sarah completely about the effective uh, relationships, but it's easy to create the illusion of two tribes, but actually that is to some extent a statistical illusion. I would argue that it was the failure of the political system to handle the aftermath of the referendum effectively uh, a sharp polarization amongst political leaderships, which actually entrenched the divide. Um, you had the hardline Brexiteers and the hardline people voters. I, by the way, was one of the happy band of complete losers who advocated the Norway plus option. Uh, we faced just as much opposition from the People's Vote campaign as from the European Research Group, because both those elite leaderships calculated that maximizing polarization gave them the best chance of winning. It was unfortunately a strategy that only one side uh, could win. And in this process, the Leave voters naturally felt the referendum might be stolen from them, whilst Remainers were convinced that the referendum had been stolen from them, either by Russia stroke Cambridge Analytica stroke Facebook, or because the stupid people had been allowed to vote alongside the people who really understood the issues. And that sort of language, which was very widespread, contributed to the polarisation that Sarah was talking about. So my real contention here, the first point, is that the polarisation around Brexit is a product of the action of political leaderships, not any fundamental polarisation of the electorate into two tribes. And our Martian would say, you're not divided into two tribes, you are fragmented, and might well point to segmentation studies um, like those uh, carried out by... Um, uh, something's gone wrong here, sorry. Um, just like those carried out by uh, Paula Surridge at Bristol, and I've lost this one, unfortunately. So rather than waste your time, uh, here we are, if I, can you, yes. Paula Surridge investigated um, 
by segmentation, not a divide, but the groups of people that she put into identity clans with shared values. And she identified 10 of these, and there are other segmentation studies which might come up with seven or 12, it doesn't really matter. But what was significant about these different values and identity clans is that they're not all equally well represented in the political system. Around two thirds of people say that no political party represents them well. And a recent pamphlet from UK in a changing Europe showed a huge mismatch between the major political parties judged by their MPs and activists and their voters, with the Conservative Party at leadership level being much more socially liberal than its voters and more right-wing economically than its voters. Labour's better aligned with its base on economics, but even more out of touch on social issues. So the picture we have is large numbers of voters who can't find a party they like. The parties are not compromising to reflect the views of voters. It's more that voters are being forced to compromise to find any party to vote for. So what do we make of this? Well, I would say that in a society that is fragmented and where political parties do not reflect their own electorates on many issues, the outcome is likely, of elections is likely to be decided by any issue that appears to be clear-cut or well-defined. And I think that's what's happened in the last four or five years. Take back control or get Brexit done emerged as a clearly defined choice for parts of the electorate who broadly weren't well represented in politics. It was that group that shared a sense of patriotic national democratic sovereignty against oppositions who did not even address those issues in the Remain or Labour campaign. And it's worth noting, by the way, that while immigration was seen as a touchstone cultural issue, it was the democratic question of where immigration policy should be decided that was key. Um, how long have I got, Kevin? Because I don't want to go on too long. Two. Two minutes, yeah. So as somebody's interested in English identity and politics, I would point out that it was that group of people who are more English than British who were the decisive leave voters in 2016 and entirely responsible for the Conservative victory in 2019. But as people who are left of centre on economic issues, on the socially conservative side on social issues, and have a strongly national view of democracy and sovereignty, they stand out as a particularly poorly represented group in the political system. They ended up largely where they did on one issue. So the extent to which we will have cultural wars or other political wars in the future will depend on the interaction between political parties and leaderships and this fragmented and disenfranchised electorate. If, as in the years after Brexit, political leaderships choose to polarise issues for their own advantage, we will certainly have conflict. Not because the people are deeply divided, but because politics chooses to make cultural issues a dividing line. If, on the other hand, one or more parties move to align their views more closely with the larger groups of voters, then cultural wars are perhaps less likely. And that's the interesting question that will dominate electoral strategy, I would suggest, for the next four years, including that in both the major parties. I'll leave it at that. Thank you, John, very much indeed. Uh, so we started with Sarah saying that um, it's not a culture war. Uh, Brexit created uh, a polarisation because it was uh, top down. And John has uh, taken that a step further, saying that the polarisation was exacerbated by a political system that couldn't really handle or heal the divisions of the referendum. And there are, um, uh, there is not a natural polarisation in society, but there's a spread of values and uh, opinions. 
So, uh, Charminda, over to you. Um, okay, I want to take sort of a longer view of this, um, going back in time, because of course, 2016 was not the first time that Britain had voted on membership of the European Union. There was the vote in 1975, shortly after Britain joined what was then the EEC, on whether to remain as members. And I want to hone in on one county, Lincolnshire, because in 2016, Lincolnshire was pretty much the Brexit capital of Britain. But in 1975, Lincolnshire voted 75% to stay in the European Economic Community. It was the fourth biggest Remain vote, effectively, in 1975 in the entire UK. The biggest was in North Yorkshire, which also voted to leave in 2016. So I kind of want to look at what is it that changed between 75 and 2016. And there's a couple of things that changed. Firstly, in 75, there were no sort of centrist political figures backing the Leave campaign. Um, and Leave, you know, the no campaign to EEC got cast as this sort of extremist, you know, Tony Benn, Enoch Powell. All the newspapers except the Morning Star backed uh, staying in, the Euro in Europe in 1975. Of course, that dramatically changed in, by 2016. And what happens on the right of the political spectrum during the 1980s and the 1990s is that you get this much more Eurosceptic Conservative Party, particularly after Thatcher's Bruges speech in 1988. You have the right wing media becoming far more hostile to Europe and some would say far more hysterical about Europe. But also you have this sort of shift in the in the direction of the European Union, or some would say a shift from being the sort of intergovernmental body based around nation state vetoes and this kind of thing, much more towards qualified majority voting and a kind of more federal integrationist model, which went down very, very badly among conservatives. Now, it didn't go down great, actually, with the British public. The British public never really bought into the European project. But as Sarah alluded to, it wasn't really a very significant or salient issue for the British public. It wasn't driving voter behaviour. It certainly didn't do that in when New Labour were winning big majorities um, on a pretty pro-EU platform. The big change, and I say this, I, I'll say, yeah, I'll preface this. Look, I am someone who voted Remain. I'm quite Eurosceptic, but I voted to Remain. I think Brexit's a bad idea and I'm supportive of immigration. The big thing that did change was EU enlargement and the immigration wave that followed that. Uh, now, it's interesting. In 2001, the Conservative Manifesto was a very, very Eurosceptic manifesto, a save the pound pitch made by William Hague, you had Anne Widdicombe there as well. The 2001 Tory manifesto backed EU enlargement. And when you get to 2004, very few people in the public or at the political level and government level expected the level of immigration that we had as a result of that. And that immediately provoked this, well, there was a lot of very, very aggressive media coverage around that, uh, that, that movement of uh, migrants from Eastern Central Europe to Britain. And you had a public backlash, you had a political backlash from that, and you had the rise of Nigel Farage. In many ways, that's around the time that Euroscepticism stops being so much about these sort of pure sovereignty issues and these sort of niche questions of the Norway model and started being much more nativist. And it went from a low, this low salience issue of sovereignty to this high salience issue 
of immigration because the thing with immigration in British politics is there was never a golden age in Britain's attitudes towards immigration. Even when Windrush arrived, Clement Attlee was worrying about what the impact of black immigration might be. Uh, they, you know, during the 60s and the, you know, the 50s and the 60s, there's all the golden age of the post-war consensus. You had this informal color bar, a racist color bar in industrial employment that was backed by some of the trade unions. When Enoch Powell was sacked over his rivers of blood, blood speech, one in three London dockers went on strike in support of him which is incredible when you think about it. And New Labour, when they were in power, immigration re-emerged very much as an issue around 2000 with the Songat refugee camp. And New Labour passed a torrent of laws against asylum seekers and against non-EU immigration during its time in office, which I should say did it absolutely no favours whatsoever at the ballot box. So what you get in 2016 is which is different to 75 you have more mainstream supporters of leave michael govin boris johnson you have much more media print media support for leave you also have very little genuine enthusiasm for remain even amongst remain voters in 2016 there was widespread skepticism about eu immigration it was a pretty tepid campaign reflecting a pretty tepid and quite pragmatic rather than impassioned sort of pro-EU vote in that referendum. In terms of what drove the referendum result, um, I would say that there were three big drives. Immigration, uh, as I mentioned, you know, a high very high salience issue for opponents of EU immigration, a low salience issue for some people more tolerant of EU immigration. So they weren't, you know, Remainers weren't really looking to die in a ditch over this thing. Uh, in 2016. That changed later on. Sovereignty. There had never, say, never really been a national consensus behind the European project. It was more a kind of pragmatic tolerance rather than an embracing of pooled sovereignty. And the things I say, sovereignty was quite a low salience issue. Of course, immigration feeds into that as well. Who gets to decide uh, our immigration policy? I think that's what John was alluding to. But what happened was this low salience issue of uh, national, national sovereignty, suddenly the public was given a yes-no vote on this. And the other thing was the opportunity to kick the establishment, especially in post-industrial areas marked by decades of economic stagnation, and I would argue decades of political ignorance, uh, ignorance of those areas by the political class. It was pretty much saying, you know, the political establishment saying, kick me, and well, they kicked so um, where we are now, and I would say that there are, in terms of, you know, I've been talking a lot about immigration and John was alluding, you know, talking about how there aren't sort of just two camps on this. And I agree with him. I'd say I would sort of break it up into sort of four views on this. You've got the power lights who sort of in the tradition of Enoch Powell and more recently Nigel Farage. They don't like immigration. They don't want any immigration. Uh, people who are ethnic minorities but born in this country, like me, we're sort if we're accepted as British at all, it depends on us agreeing with all of their views and not speaking up. Ash Sarkar actually, I thought, made a very good comment in a panel debate I watched her just last week. She said, you know, she's very, very assimilated to British lifestyles, but because she criticizes that Brexit political project and the political right, she's regarded as being an outsider by 
the, you know, the, the, the populist right. Then you've got people whose focus is on sovereignty and people whose view on immigration is not so much total opposition, but this idea of why is it our responsibility in Britain to, for example, take in refugees from other countries? We accept that there's a problem in these countries. Why is this our responsibility? Then you've got what I would say are described as liberals who have become much more pro-EU since the referendum, quite frankly. Um, support for immigration is kind of an adjunct to their EU membership rather than a support for immigration end of itself. And then you have the pro-immigration left, uh, particularly younger people who are impassioned in their support of immigration, for whom support for immigration, and refugees and migrant rights is absolutely critically important to them. Uh, in terms of uh, where, you know, does this change everything? I would that the main effect uh, of Brexit was increasing the salience of these divisive issues within Labour's electoral coalition. Leave voters across the political spectrum wanted their vote implemented. Meanwhile, Remainers, after the 2016 result, became much more enthusiastic about the European Union than, frankly, I think they had actually been before. Um, and whilst Conservatives, you know, some more, more Conservative Remain voters, some of them quite Eurosceptic, actually, they were willing to go on along with the, you know, much of the Conservative agenda on this point. But some things I would say, and this is my concluding comments, um, this is not America. I cannot emphasize this enough. Yes, we have what I've described, values divide, but religion, which is a huge driver of the American culture wars around things like abortion and gay rights, it's much more marginal in this country in political terms, particularly actually amongst the white British population. Um, we don't have Fox News, which is pumping out a daily dose of propaganda and lies in America. Uh, we don't have that, although it seems Ofcom are doing their damnedest to give us it. Um, most of the culture war rows that pass on a daily basis are very low salience. These aren't things that people really care about in large numbers. Things like the proms row. I think there seems to be some ridiculous uh, argument at the moment about uh, Uncle Ben's rice or something like that. People don't really care about this, or if they do, they don't necessarily see it in party political terms. Um, you know, it, it, this, these, these, discussion points really detract from the fact that there are actually quite large areas of public unity in this country on issues of public opinion uh, on political issues as well. And um, yeah, the reference to the economy becoming more important, I think I completely agree with that. And that could blow a lot of the nonsense we're seeing in the, in the populist press uh, out of the water. I rather hope it does. Um, it's not, I would say in terms of labor, I don't think it's hard for Labour to appeal to the people I described as sovereigntists and the people I described as liberals now that Brexit has happened. And um, yeah, there's not much of a kind of a rejoin fan club out there. Is there, there is some, but not much. Um, the difficulty will be appealing to those two groups whilst keeping on board that that very pro-immigration left, people who I largely agree with, by the way, in terms of the actual policy issues here, um, who you know, for whom, as I say, immigration is a very important issue. Trying to cut, you know, bring together all three of those groups, I think, very much more of a challenge. Uh, what will help Labour uh, in this is having an unpopular government screwing literally everything up. Over to you, Boris. <laughs> 
Thank you, Javinder, very much uh, indeed. I wonder if I could um, uh, start with some uh, general questions, and then I've got uh, specific questions for each of our uh, contributors. I guess uh, what I'm taking from our presentations is some degree of consensus that Brexit itself was the trigger of polarization. Uh, polarization has been created. Uh, John was emphasizing uh, the role of political elites in uh, worsening this uh, polarization. I wasn't quite clear what each of you were saying in terms of whether this polarization is therefore something which is uh, uh, here to stay or whether it can be um, simply avoided given a difference of uh, party leadership and uh, party uh, strategy. Uh, I wonder, John, do you want to kick off on that and then I'll come to the other two. Could you unmute yourself, please? Yes. I mean, I think... I think my point is that when you have such large groups in the electorate that feel badly represented by the political system, all sorts of issues could become defined as dividing line issues um, in the sense that if neither of the political parties, major political parties, is well aligned with large sections of its electoral base, which is exactly the case we're in at the moment. And Chaminda was sort of emphasising some of the, the tensions within the Labour electoral debate base, let alone the one that it would like to have at the next election. Um, then political parties can put a lot of store on finding a single issue which appeals to a sufficiently broad part of the electorate to carry them over the line. And in a sense, that's what Get Brexit did, done did for the Conservatives at the last election. So the next time an election comes along, it might be the old Brexit divide. It might be a completely different one altogether. So, for example, if you had a party that was had a left-wing, nationalist-focused economic strategy and a promise of being competent in handling immigration, not, not a power-like one, but actually, yes, a reasonably tight immigration system, you could see that setting up a different set of electoral tensions in it. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, if, if Labour, for example, failed to be economically credible, then you could see that a Conservative government, even one that fails completely on the economy and COVID, could fight a successful cultural war, not around Brexit, but around populist issues of immigration and so on, and take on the party that way. So my okay. real concern is, I, I think, assuming the next division will still be the Brexit divide, or Brexit is wrong, but when you have large numbers of people who are poorly represented okay. and that group of sort of left-wing nationalist uh, groups is, is the one that Paula Surridge picks out as the biggest single group that's not represented in politics, then you've got a lot of people floating around the system who might be part of a new division. Thank you. Sarah? I mean, I wouldn't say that there wasn't any divisions in British society beforehand. I mean, I think, I, I mean, I fully agree with, with John and Timinda in terms of, you know, talking about how it was mobilized. 
And I think that's the key thing that it was mobilized into something very binary and also something I think that spilled into over to being something more than politics. And, and I think one thing perhaps we, we haven't mentioned is also about the nature of a referendum, because it's not only that it's a binary choice, which forced people, even the sort of, I think there were a lot of, I agree with Trimander, there were a lot of sort of soft Eurosceptics in Britain that were unhappy with aspects of European integration. It wasn't that important, but they sort of had to choose a side. Then what a referendum does is not only are you forced to, to choose a side, when you're on the losing side, there's also no comeback. There's no cyclical uh, uh, sort of rhythm to it like we have in elections. So if you were a Labour supporter in 2019, you might be pretty upset that Boris Johnson won you know, a big victory, but you might think, well, I'll have another chance. And as we can see what's happened with polls, in fact, there's been a shift in polls. But you don't have, I mean, most Remainers would feel, well, they don't have another chance. This is it for a generation. And Chiminda is also entirely right in saying, you know, it's not, you know, people who remain as feel, you know, on the whole, a lot more strongly about it now when it's been taken away and a lot more passionately than they did before. So I think there's something about this referendum, uh, the feeling of really being robbed on it. And then in particular, if then they felt there was somehow, you know, people not playing by the rules or voters not taking into consideration the right issues and so on. So, so there's that sort of feeling that it wasn't quite legitimate and there's no, you're not represented by the system. So it's not just, John was talking about the failure of a representative system, you know, maybe parties not representing, but the referendum adds something to that, which is that people who are on the losing side in a referendum just can't see a way out. And I think that added to that feeling, that polarization, that feeling of, dislike of the other group and of politicians representing the other group. Thanks, uh, Sarah. I wonder if I could just follow up with one particular uh, question uh, to you. Of course, uh, what we're talking about here is a kind of cultural polarisation. But I uh, was reading recently a paper by Robert Ford at the University of Manchester, and he was emphasising the demographics, uh, a demographic difference that's uh, if we talk about cultural uh, polarization, we talk about questions of age and education as being central uh, to, to this point of uh, division. And he was making the point that um, in that respect, the demographics are actually on the side of the more liberal, open, cosmopolitan uh, side of the uh, cultural uh, divide. Uh, so time is on the side of uh, of, of that um, side of the argument, as it would. Would you buy into the idea that the uh, cultural polarization, so far as it exists, is something which may be affected by demographic change or, or over time? I mean, first of all, it's it, we, none of us have really talked a lot about it, but it's very clear that when you look at the Brexit divide, that there are certain socio-demographic dividers. I mean, and you mentioned the two key ones. One is education, and that's something we see across Europe. So that's not uniquely British. The more highly educated are generally much more pro-European and generally much more pro-trade and, and progressive in, in all sorts of sort of cultural ways. And the other one in a is age. And it's interesting in Britain that that divide, if you again compare it to Europe, we have more of an age divide in Britain than we see in most of Europe. So there's a sort of, there's an interesting difference. Then to your question and Rob's assertion that, oh, uh, I remember actually Ron Engelhardt made it back in the 70s saying, oh, younger people are more pro-European. So that 
means, you know, in 30 years, everyone will love Europe. Well, we all know what happened with that. And so uh, I'm not sort of, you know, Rob understands these issues very well. So I'm not sort of, but we have to understand it, it means one thing is what you think when you're young. Does that mean you keep those very pro-European attitudes? And I think we just don't know the extent of progressive attitudes in general or whether there's a shift as you grow older and so on. Certainly, I mean, we, we can't also lose sight of that on a lot of issues, actually, the population in general has just become much more uh, progressive, young and old. And that's an issue to do with gay marriage, for example. There's been a cultural revolution, you know, in, in the UK, but also across Europe that really we couldn't have imagined. Uh, there used to be a divide and there just isn't anymore. So, so perhaps that will happen on certain issues. The thing is, of course, what happened around Europe is that some of these things have, because of the referendum, the debate around it, have become more entrenched. It's become part of who people are and that's sort of why I brought up this issue of a social identity that it's no longer just you have certain views but it has become sort of part of your identity and that means that means that it's therefore less malleable and less likely to change. Thanks very much. Coming uh, the polarization here to stay or um, primarily a result of party leadership um, strategies uh, etc and uh, a mismatch between um, party leaders and their, their base. But could I also follow up on your point about the um, toxic nature of immigration? We've seen... The immigration debate, just to be clear. Not and the immigration debate, the immigration debate, I apologise. Um, but in, the, in that, in recent years, we've seen, I believe, an increase in immigration but a decline in the salience of immigration as a political issue in the last few years. Uh, how would you interpret that in terms of whether cultural polarization is here to stay or not? Um, I would, well, first of all, I think it's worth saying that, um, you know, those four groups I mentioned, you know, um, two of them have very, very firm views and positions on immigration. The other two don't so much. Um, and actually, you know, if you take this in terms of yes or no to immigration or questions on immigration, you get obviously a binary. But if you ask people their views on immigration on a scale of one to 10, it's much more even across that. And actually it tends to cluster towards the middle. Um, so uh, it, in terms of why there's been a, more of a positive view of immigration, and there certainly has been since the Brexit vote, it may be that for Leave voters, they now feel, well, we've got the right to, set the rules so we're not so it's no longer being imposed on us that might be part of it um but we're also seeing a more pro uh migration view amongst remain voters as well i think partly that's the identity formation around being pro remain and the you know immigration as an adjunct of that i think also just there's been a lot more discussion about the positives of immigration about the importance of immigration to the economy and this sort of thing so i think you know to, to be honest you know, I mean, let, let me be blunt. I mean, if, you know, if, if the Remain campaign in actual 2016 had resembled the kind of, you know, more impassioned Remain campaign we saw since 2016, then the result might have been a bit different um, in 2016 uh, rather than rather sort of tepid thing that we had. But, you know, I think just there's, there's more of a recognition, I think, now of the value of immigration to this country and of course bear in mind in 2016 we were coming off the back of that uh you know the the, the refugee um wave or crisis or however you want to describe that uh from the middle east and also the incredible hyperbola 
in the, from the right around the um, migration from Bulgaria and Romania, which I think kicked in in 2014, if I remember correctly. So, you know, it had been sort of peak hysteria uh, leading up to that. Nigel Farage tried this summer to revive that, aided and betted by our delightful media, um, didn't really get so far. And I thought that was actually a positive that um, immigration didn't really rise much in the sort of voter importance uh, rates, despite, you know, Nigel Farage running around and in, in the, on the beaches and these you know, far right nutters banging down the doors of hotels. It didn't really cut through the same way. And I thought that was a positive. I'm sure it would be a positive if uh, far right nutters uh, knocking down the doors of hotels didn't have traction with public opinion. I think we could all agree that that would be a social gain uh, for us all. I'm going to switch, uh, so far as I can, to the questions which are on my screen coming in. And there's a first question uh, which is primarily for John from Cayley uh, from the United States, uh, saying, if political parties don't accurately represent the electorate, why wouldn't we see a rise in votes for protest parties? For example, the monster raving lo uh, loony party. Uh, why aren't we seeing uh, protest parties um, taking over the political space? Well, I'd, I'd say two things. One is that most voters want to feel that their vote is going to count. And therefore, and particularly in our first-past-the-post system, the pressure to maximise your influence by voting for somebody you think can win is actually very strong, both at a personal level and at a cultural level, and political, con political campaigns are conducted on the basis of only X can win here, or only X can beat Labour or can beat the Tories here. That's one part of it. The answer, though, is that, of course, parties have come from nowhere in order to reshape the political environment within the recent past. So the rise in support for UKIP uh, from really 2010 onwards, though they had very little electoral success in parliamentary terms and only a scattered success in local government terms, actually changed the politics of the Conservative Party to make it a pro-referendum party. So there are clearly cases where voters uh, look for somebody who is saying who they can say, I think they're saying what I think. Now, some people's reaction to that is always, well, I didn't like that party, I deplore it. But actually, that was voters using their vote to reshape the political system. But again, that would have been a vote with a purpose, not a, a sort of the idea of having a, 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 a wasted vote. So I think that's the simple, the simple answer to it. Um, I, I think the problem is that... <laughs> You know, I'd rather have a system of politics where people were trying to give people rather better options that, 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 that did reflect their, their, their views from the major parties, but we're not there at the moment. Okay, just a quick uh, follow-up, um, I think, to John in terms of his argument from Ben Fox, um, who's essentially saying that uh, does the Scottish National Party have the left-wing uh, vote right, as it were, that they're, they're combining left-wing uh, policy positions with a, a national identity. Are they more in tune with the kind of disconnected part of the, the electorate that you were alluding to? Well, I would always make the point that the epicentre of the Brexit vote was in England, and it was amongst voters who uh, have a view of English interests, which is quite distinct from those who say they're British, not English. 
and that England is the only part of the union not to have had a discussion about its governance or a referendum on its system of governance in the past 20 years, which they've had in Scotland and Wales and in Northern Ireland. And that to some extent, the Brexit referendum took place in a nation that had no idea of what it was as a nation. It doesn't have a single national identity. So you have those who are English rather than British, those who are British rather than English and those in between. I could go on about this for hours, but I won't. Nor a consensus about how we are governed or where sovereignty lies, whether we are actually supporters of the union, whether we want English issues first, whether we see ourselves as European. So to the extent that the situation in Scotland, and this is not just the SNP, this is really the post-imperial breakup of the Union. For 40 years or more now, Scotland has developed its own distinct political space and political ideas are contested within an idea of what it is to be Scottish. That dimension is completely and utterly lacking in the debate that has taken place in England. So it's not so much the SNP has got it right, it is that there is no political space that people recognise as the English political space and there are, of course, no institutions within which English, English mm. in the border said, England's future can be discussed. Okay. Thank you, John. Uh, sorry, I wonder Kevin, if you could... Kevin, can I quickly uh, jump, jump in there, sorry, please, please. on this point? Um, because uh, someone mentioned Rob Ford earlier, and I want to mention him as well, because he actually addressed part of this issue around the SNP. Because I've, I've wondered for a long time, you know, the sort of working, white working class vote that we've seen in this country, you know, move towards a kind of, you know, pro-Brexit and you know, sort of culturally more right-wing position. I was, I've been wondering for a while, where is that in Scotland? And what Rob Ford says, and I think he's probably right on this, is that the SNP essentially managed to appeal to that vote by casting the enemy, if you like, as being the Conservative Party in Westminster in England and sort of turning the ire in that direction rather than, you know, in other directions. And that sort of explains why, you know, helps explain why you didn't get anywhere. And that sort of politics has been rather stunted in Scotland. Okay, let's go to, uh, to more questions. And I'll try to uh, speed up and invite you just to give some brief responses. But um, Sarah, I wonder if you could respond to the question from Claire Cogan. Um, do you think the problem of polarisation is essentially the lack of democratic participation activity? And that if there'd been things, more uh, activities like citizens' assemblies, there would be less resentment uh, among Remainers now, and therefore less polarisation. So uh, the, the, yeah. the problem of polarisation is the political process. I mean, I agree with, with, with John's analysis of that, that some of these divisions that, of course, were created during the, the campaign itself were then really entrenched because of everything that happened afterwards. And that didn't need to have been so. I mean, we could have had uh, a Brexit vote and then we could have had a different process, ideally with something, you know, that followed. Ideally, if, if uh, you know, what the question asked about citizen assemblies, ideally that would have fed into the process already beforehand. And, and we've seen that in Ireland, for example, where in questions and, uh, around, for example, abortions, that there are citizen assemblies that feed into that process. So the question 
what happens now is not only decided afterwards, because of course what happened after we voted to leave the European Union is then we didn't really have any kind of mandate for what kind of Brexit. We knew there was a mandate to leave the European Union, but that could have taken many forms. It could have been, you know, in the single market, it could have been, you know, John was saying he was sort of the Norway plus, I guess that was a kind of single market customs union. And that might've been the middle point. In fact, what happened was that we got a quite even, you know, even if we get a deal at the end of the year, quite what we would have called back then hard Brexit, but certainly that fight kept on going in terms of what is the mandate and was not established in the referendum. So there I very much agree with the question that it didn't have to have happened like that. And we do have examples. I mentioned Ireland where citizen assemblies can feed into the process beforehand, but also, and this comes back to the sort of adversarial nature of the British system uh, in Denmark, when, um, where I'm from originally. So excuse me for these esoteric examples, but in Denmark, after the 92 referendum, where the Danes voted no to Maastricht, so it's not only the British that vote no in referendums and European integration, there was what's called a national compromise. So all the major parties in Parliament went together, including those that had recommended uh, to leave uh, to vote against Maastricht, went together and came up with a national compromise. And that partly meant that there wasn't this kind of polarization because there was a sort of I an attempt to find the middle ground. So, so that's a long way of saying, yes, I think this could have been handled much better by the political elites by bringing in citizens and, and by compromising more. Okay, just a quick follow-up, uh, Sarah, from Matilda Piper, who's an A-level politics student. Would a political system that isn't based on two main parties be better at the handling and healing of this divide? Uh, hello, Matilda. I mean, yes, uh, I, I think that sort of comes a bit from, from uh, uh, out of my first answer to the other question is I very much think that when you have a sort of two party system, so, you know, the first past the post electoral system tends to create a sort of adversarial politics where the conservatives at the time felt there was no need for them to compromise or bring labor in or bring the liberal Democrats in and so on in those uh, negotiations and ideas about how. And I think if we had a different electoral system um, where not a single party had a majority uh, and there were more parties, then there is generally, you get much more compromising, uh, much more need for compromise and also a culture of compromise where parties can sit together and agree on compromises that then brings the nation together. It doesn't mean you don't have, you know, far right populist politics in the rest of Europe. I mean, we know that. So I'm not saying it's a sort of panacea, but I certainly think that the, the British two-party system and adversarial system was particularly unfortunate on top of a very divisive referendum. Then you get very divisive, very polarized political parties that we've had in the last. Uh, and I think that just exacerbated the problem. Okay, thanks. Uh, Chaminda, a question perhaps uh, if you could uh, respond to this. This is from Rakorio Ferro-Adams, a former civil servant. Is it possible that we still don't have the full picture of the differing views and why they exist? Is there a possibility that the populations across the countries are disconnected uh, from political parties? Uh, please also consider the views of British ethnic minorities about the continued segregation in our discussion, uh, because we're focusing too much on English identity uh, when pe many people are from immigrant families and uh, his point seems to be about uh, a disconnect more generally uh, uh, and that perhaps we're looking, we're simplifying too much in terms of cultural camps. 
Um, well, obviously, I am from an immigrant family. Well, I was born in this country. Um, I would say well, there's sort of different grounds covered there. So, I mean, I think we've all sort of said that there aren't two camps in this country on these issues, uh, that it is more fragmented than that. And um, I would certainly agree that there is a disconnect, um, you know, I, although I think probably at every age in, in every country, there's be you know people will tell you there's a disconnect between the political class and the you know and the, and the public at large. Um, I think it is true that you know what people are referring to uh, earlier about that sort of education based you know sort of that edu influence impact of education levels or you know uh, on voting habits. I think that's something that is actually not well understood at the moment at all um, in terms of why that's happening. Um, I would say uh, in terms of disconnect, I think, you know, we have, we have a system where we have 650 MPs in Parliament of whom, well, Sinn Féin don't turn up, but the rest do. And, you know, every Friday they hold a constituency surgery where people living in their constituency turn up and raise issues that are facing them or they'll write into their MP and say, well, you know, this is a problem. And, uh, and that really is the biggest connection between constituents and, and the concerns of constituents and what goes on in Westminster. And it's, I think, probably understated as being that connection. I would say part of the disconnect is that there's probably not enough power in our in the way that our politics takes place, there's probably not enough power with MPs and there's probably too much power with unelected special advisors um, roaming around like kings and coming out with their various sort of hobby horses and all this sort of thing. Most obvious example being Dominic Cummings. So I think that is actually a root of the disconnect, you know, probably too much in influence of uh, journalists, I am a journalist, of course, probably too much influence of political journalism and political media coverage in what politicians do, um, you know, when really journalists aren't very representative of the country at large demographically. Uh, in terms of ethnic minorities, um, one thing I will say is I, I mentioned earlier how, you know, the trade unions in the past have been in some ways part of the problem in terms of race relations. Uh, I would say that absolutely a core part of the solution um, now. I mean, if you're looking, you know, the fact is that when we talk about the white working class, yes, it is excluding um, the ethnic minority working class, which is disproportionately working class, disproportionately likely to be working class, completely cut out of that discussion. Now, when we talk about class politics, which is sort of my um, way of looking at things, I suppose, where there is a difference um, based on ethnicity, where, you know, for example, with education levels, where, you know, it seems white working class boys come out worse in the education system, that obviously needs looking at and specific investigation. Why has that happened? It needs addressing. But, you know, in the workplace, the situations aren't exactly the same, but they are akin to each other. And what you get, you, you've got these, you know, you've got new trade unions, quite radical trade unions, like the uh, IWGB, for example, unionizing workers in the gig economy, often ethnic minority, not always ethnic minority, cutting across the sort of, you know, narratives about undercutting wages and all this sort of divide and rule stuff to raise, you know, the, the position of everyone, um, you know, covered by those uh, union that union representation yeah. and that i think is part of the way forward i okay. don't know if that answered the question that you're asking i think it uh, i think it did uh, thank you uh, i'm going to pick up a question here which is 
Uh, for Sarah, but I'm going to ask each of you to respond. I'm going to make it a little bit more uh, general. And um, this has just disappeared from my uh, screen very helpfully. Uh, but essentially, the question was uh, from uh, Georgie in Russia. And uh, it was a question explicitly uh, for Sarah about the significance of Brexit in the next election, whether it would have a decisive influence on the outcome of the next election. Of course, I would like to refer back to uh, John's point also about a disconnect with voters. And I wonder what he would be advising Keir Starmer in terms of uh, the Labour strategy for the next election in relation to the groups that he'd identified. And Charminda also in terms of uh, whether this issue is going to be a mobilising factor uh, for the next election uh, more uh, generally. Sarah, do you want to respond to the significance of Brexit for the next election for uh, our friend from Russia? Uh, yes, I think there's two ways in which um, Brexit could matter in the next election, and I think it will, but one way is this sort of question of competence. So, so far, Brexit has, of course, been a sort of ideological issue. You're for it or against it. Um, Brexit, you know, has happened, but it will have happened even more so by the next election. But the question where Brexit can matter is the question of how well has the Conservative Party that has now been really in charge of Brexit from the very infancy of calling the referendum to negotiating the deal to negotiating or not a trade deal, how well have they handled it? And if that seemed to be, have been done very badly, then that will have consequences, just as a matter of, you know, really either side, whether you're pro-Brexit or pro-Remain, in terms of competence. I mean, I think that's what we're seeing now in the polls around COVID. Po COVID is not a polarizing issue, as it is in the US, about whether or not, you know, you think things should be done or not. That's not the case. But competence is, you know, do we think this government is handling it the best they could? And most people think they haven't. And I think Brexit could become an issue like that uh, once we see the consequences of leaving the transition period. On top of that, I think there's also some of the ideological division that will still remain. There will still be Remainers who are angry uh, about uh, the outcome of the, of the Brexit negotiation and having left and having left without, you know, a, certainly a very comprehensive trade deal and the consequences of that. So I think in both of those ways, Brexit could matter. But I think the competence one is a new one because the 2009 general election was all about promises. I'll get Brexit done. I'll be the one delivering. And now, you know, there would be a sanctioning. Was this delivery then uh, to people's satisfaction? And I think that should worry the Conservative Party. John, uh, do you think yeah, Brexit would be decisive in the next election and what would you advise Labour? I mean, back in 2016, I wrote an article called In Favour of Cake. Uh, because Boris Johnson had said we could have our cake and eat it. We could leave uh, the EU and we could still be full members of the single market. And I felt all the way along that Labour's critique should have been now deliver what you promised. And I think that's actually now where Keir Starmer's taking the Labour Party, which is you've made all these promises, you had an oven ready deal, you have to deliver on it. So I think it will be even more than competence. I think that if, if it uh, turns out to be a bit of a disaster, the question will not just be about competence, it will be actually having lied to people about what the government was going to do. So I think the critique will be based around betrayal of the promises that have been made, or at least should be. I don't advise Keir, but that's where I think the position should be. However, the com the real question for most of the electorate will be, does, uh, does the Labour Party, for example, have a compelling vision of the nation going forward? 
And that will have to be a vision of a nation that is not inside the EU. We will, I'm pretty certain, have left. So the question will then be, can you set out a convincing vision of a positive relationship with the EU, which is still absolutely on our doorstep, which uh, is able to... Um, still, if you like, reassure those people who had voted for Brexit that Labour's not about to take them back into something they probably still don't like the idea of, uh, but nonetheless can bring together a broad coalition of voters. And that's going to be a challenge. And at the moment, we don't even know what that's going to be look like, look like, because we don't know even the terms of our separation, let alone how that will work out, how that will work out in practice. And, and, you know, it's very difficult to, to predict, but that compelling vision will be more important than people's past positions on Brexit. Okay, thanks. Jaminder, on the uh, Brexit issue of the next election, I wonder, um, we'd like your comment in general, but can I sneak in a more specific question? And this is from Abby Sinclair from Australia. Uh, and she says, uh, should we be worried about the pivot towards the white Anglosphere in British foreign and immigration policy and its potential to reinforce and legitimise more overt racism and social intolerance within British society? Uh, right, well, um, to be honest, all I can think of right at the moment is cake, but um, the, I, think, <laughs> I think in terms of that, I'll take that last one first. Um, I mean, I, I would put it uh, the, the, you, you know, the Brexiters have this, or some of the Brexiters have this sort of Kanzuk fantasy, which harks back to the sort of white empire dominions uh, and all this nonsense. Um, you know, very, very, you know, anachronistic. I mean, I would put it more broadly in terms of the way the Conservatives are approaching immigration at the moment. Certainly rhetorically, it is very much whipping up division, whip up, you know, uh, you know the culture around it um legitimizing you know uh hatred of refugees in particular um and that being essentially a political strategy um there's no doubt that there's a sort of racialized tinge or want of a better word a racialized element to um what it, you know is coming out of you know some of the brexit coming from some of the brexiters um but i think the the problem is really very broadly the way that the conservatives are framing immigration as an issue and you know now that they've so-called taken back control of EU immigration, they want to beat up on uh, non-EU immigration, uh, whilst interestingly enough, I think actually easing some of the barriers to work visas, as I understand it, uh, for non-EU immigration at the same time, although they're doing that rather quietly. Um, in terms of uh, what Brexit, uh, will Brexit be a driving force at the next election? Um, I mean, to be blunt, we don't yet know how things are going to pan out. I mean, we haven't even mentioned the point that Scotland might be banging on the door, demanding another independence referendum and how that might play, you know, affect the, you know, the, the, election, you know, the, the broader sort of general election discourse. But, you know, in terms of Brexit itself, it depends, first of all, on how it turns out in terms of the delivery, um, whether it's chaotic, whether that chaos lasts until the next election or whether it's shorter term, um, you know, whether you have major employers shutting down and saying this is because of Brexit or not, you know, whether people are just exhausted of hearing about the damn thing, which is a very, very you know, plausible outcome uh, by 2024. Um, if this whole thing does go to pot and you do have 
uh, a major economic crisis that is identifiably at least partly down to Brexit and the government's handling of it. Um, be aware that the right, the Conservatives and the right wing media will go absolutely hell for leather doing what they've been doing for a very long time, which is blaming literally everyone else but themselves for what is going wrong on their watch. It is what they're doing at the moment. It's what they've been doing for the last four years, blaming the lawyers, blaming the judges, blaming Remainers, blaming Labour, blaming immigrants, blaming the SNP, blaming everybody else. Whether that cuts through with Leave voters again, remains to be seen. But the thing I will say is that if there is a lasting or a significant economic crisis, even if it's just down to COVID, but certainly if it seems to be exacerbated by Brexit and the government's handling of Brexit, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, if you have an economic crisis and a reasonably popular opposition leader, that generally leads to a change of government in this country. Okay, thank you. There's a question from uh, Rebecca, and uh, I'll invite any of you to uh, to comment on this, which is essentially um, to put alongside the populist rhetoric of politicians as being an instigator of this polarization uh, with something that hasn't been mentioned so much uh, so far, and that is the influence of uh, the press and the media uh, generally. So uh, I took it from some of the comments earlier that uh, the cultural polarization that uh, may exist at present is something which has been whipped up by politicians. What about it being whipped up by the, by the media? Anyone want to comment on that? Rebecca's question. I think Teminda already uh, mentioned that when he when you compared the two referendums, but certainly in a sort of comparative perspective, I can say that we do know that the British press is more Eurosceptic and has been for decades. Uh, and there is research showing that that sort of, even if the press didn't make a massive difference, which it, which it might have, it's difficult to establish in the referendum came, campaign itself. Uh, there's evidence suggesting that it certainly have contributed to greater Euroscepticism and also indeed greater anti-immigration attitude in, in, in the UK by this sort of drip feed and in particular amongst people who read the sort of newspapers. It's always ha hard to disentangle, you know, to what extent is the British press more Eurosceptic and more anti-immigration because their readers are and to what extent are they causing it. But to the extent we can say that, then certainly... Uh, the British press is an outlier in Europe with its Euroscepticism and, and it's likely that has contributed to some of these divides. To what extent do you think, and this is picking up a question from uh, Mia uh, uh, from uh, Sussex, uh, to what extent do you think the use of social media has exacerbated the, um, the polarisation that we're witnessing? I mean, if I, if I can pick up quickly on the on the first point as the working politician on the panel or once working politician, I mean, I, I suppose the fact that we have a biased media towards the right of centre in the print media is so built into my understanding of the world, I hardly think about it uh, anymore. Um, the reality is print sales are falling and I think the influence has always been overstated. My, my view is that they tend to get purchased because these are things that people are talking about. 
And to take, I mean, immigration has come up several times, but to give you an example, my view absolutely is that the, while the underestimate of the number of A8 migrants that would come here after 2004 was a major error of government because government was unprepared, the real political damage was done by the failure, and I was in government at the time, or uh, actually I was out of government because of the Iraq war, but I came back soon soon afterwards. The real failure was of the, the Labour government to acknowledge that this sudden change had happened and that it wasn't surprising that people were talking about, it, as exemplified by Gordon Brown and Mrs Duffy. Those things were much more powerful in shaping the cultural view of these issues than the media actually was. But also, as so having been a working politician, I tend to come back to the view that you have to live with these things. In terms of social media, I'm actually agnostic and I, other people study these things more. I was always pretty sceptical about the hysterical arguments that said, you know, the referendum was stolen from us by Cambridge Analytica. Uh, I, I'm sure that social media reinforced the views that people had already got. I'm just not convinced that that was really the driving force that was shaping people's views. Okay, Minda, do you want to come in on that? Um, uh, yeah, okay. I, I think with what social media, the main impact it has is it increases polarization, it increases the radicalization of the polls, it creates, creates echo chambers, if you like. Um, you know, so on pretty much any issue, the sort of the, the edges of it if you like um who aren't necessarily wrong by the way i'm not making a value judgment there um regards to my own views but the edges of it will be bigger now than would have been the case in the past i think um but bear in mind you know most people really don't use social media that much and if they do they don't use it for politics so you know it is a minority effect that you're dealing with there even if it has quite a visible impact um in terms of this question of the media i mean it, it, I accept part of what John says. I think, you know, it, it depends which way you look at it. You know, the, the, the areas, you know, areas which voted heavily to leave um, had pretty, a lot, a lot of the time had quite, well, first of all, you know, you had a, about a third, I think, of ethnic minority voters did vote to leave anyway. Yeah. But, um, you know, some of the, you know, some of the more leave voting areas, you know, were quite monoethnic actually and didn't have big uh immigrant populations in some cases they were small immigrant populations but had grown quite quickly so you know how much of this was down to direct expense one thing i would say is that i think ipsos mori polling back in about 2016 found um a minority of people quite a substantive minority but about 30 to 40 percent i think saying that immigration had been bad had had a negative impact on themselves and on their local areas, but about 60% saying that it had a negative effect on the country at large. And I think that's quite interesting. I mean, with immigration polling, a lot depends on when it's asked and how it's asked. But I thought mm. that was quite interesting. That would indicate it's not simply about direct uh, experience. In terms of direct experience, I would say that there's a general, you know, you, I would fit this partly into the general sort of 40-year failure to address deindustrialization and sort of the the, you know, the 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 rise of you know casual employment in these areas and that sort of more economic side of things but i would finally say on this look you know the fact that sunderland and gateshead and south wales voted to leave didn't surprise me at all 
what surprised me was that the well-off middle-class conservative home counties um, voted either to leave or only marginally to remain when really they have it pretty good and they to, that's a demographic you traditionally expect to vote for stability. So, you know, there was something going on there which I think has generally been underexplored since 2016. I suspect, again, media coverage mm. may be part of that. Okay, thanks. Uh, for Sarah, Kayleigh, uh, LSE student from the US. Uh, could your prejudice barometer just be a matter of tracking the current salience of the issue? The UK may no longer be in the European Union, but the issue is still very salient with negotiations ongoing. It might be interesting to run the barometer in 10 years. So I guess Kayleigh's question is really the um, relevance of your uh, prejudice uh, barometer and what is that showing independent perhaps of uh, the Brexit issue? Well, and I don't think I could do it independent of the Brexit issue because the whole point of it is how you view leavers and remainers. Yeah, um, but, the, but, but I don't think there's any contradiction between the fact that obviously it is related to the salience of the issue. Because if I'm going to say about you, Kevin, I really don't like you. Uh, I think you're hypocritical, selfish and close-minded and you didn't know what you were doing when you voted remain. That's, you know, that's because it's something I feel strongly about. Uh, if it was an issue, another issue that we might disagree about, but I didn't, I'm not, I'm, because it's an emotive thing. And, and this is what, what highly salient mob, you know, politics does. It, it spills over, and I think we're seeing the example of it right now in the US. I mean, there, the, the whole term yeah. effective polarization comes out of the US. So I don't agree with, with the question, disagree with the question. Yes, it is about salience. I hope if we ask it in 10 years, we don't find these things. We found them consistently over the last four years, but I do hope that, that then we won't find that, that I won't, that I will no longer think differently about someone voting, you know, differently than me, you know, for that example. So, so yes, it is obviously okay. to have those kind of emotions, it has to be an issue you really care about. Okay, good. And I'm sure we don't have to wait 10 years uh, for, to hear what Sara really thinks of the chair of this discussion. But, <laughs> this was just um, an example. Uh, as an example, as, as an example. We're going to come towards the end of the discussion. Um, I wonder if I can ask, often in much of the literature, Brexit is seen as part of an international trend, and sentences often begin with Trump, Brexit, and etc., etc. I wonder if uh, you feel that our conception of cultural polarization in the UK may be impacted uh, by a turn in US politics uh, this November away from Donald Trump, whether there would be some kind of international effect uh, from our conception of uh, a culture war at play. Uh, I wonder who uh, would like to uh, respond to that. Chaminda, do you think uh, uh, attitudes towards uh, cultural difference would be impacted by events in the US? Uh, well, first of all, I, would, I don't tend to equate Brexit with Trump. I think Trump Trumpism is a much, much, much more toxic thing than even Brexit is. And that's with all my views on Brexit. I still think Trump is, Trumpism is far worse. Uh, I think it will change people's perceptions of America, perhaps. Um, it might take the wind out of the sails of the Farragists who sort of spent the last four years claiming that they're the voice of 17.4 million people. Um, but I, I'd be wary of kind of, you know, over-interpreting 
from one election result or you know in one country or another country you know different countries are sort of going in different directions at different times in terms of who is winning an election you know you know everyone says oh, Justin Trudeau in Canada Canada's liberal no Justin Trudeau has managed to put together a government on the basis of Canadian election results. It doesn't mean that the whole of Canada has suddenly become liberal or whatever. So, um, you know, I wouldn't read too much uh, into this. I think in Brit Britain, look, there's, I, I, maybe I'm going slightly off piste here, but I think it's important to say, you know, this question of national identity in Britain, um, which is something the left has difficulties with. I mean, I say, look, I'm not a flag-waving patriot particularly. I see things very much in terms of the national interest, what is in the interest of this country and its people. Um, and that is what, you know, Labour, you know, forget what's going on in other countries. That's what Labour has to try and find a way of reclaiming. And um, I think of what Tony Blair said, actually, I'm not a Blairite by any means, but what he said when he was leader of the opposition, talking about the Conservative Party members waving their flags uh, at the Conservative Party conference, he said, why are they waving the fabric of our flag when they are tearing up the fabric of our nation? And that was really coming back to this issue of what are you doing in terms of the country's national interest? You know, highlighting what you know, these people who make a, you know, the same with the George W. Bush presidency, the Trump presidency, you know, people who loud and proud declare how much they love their country whilst they basically tear it to pieces. Uh, you know, if I, I could tell you that I love my pet kitten, but if I then continue to you know, proceed to starve my pet kitten and give a good kicking to my pet kitten, kitten every now and then, I don't think anyone would believe that I love my pet kitten. I should say I don't have a pet kitten. But it's that sort of thing, contrasting the rhetoric with reality. And that, I think, is actually fundamental to, to, to taking away the right's kind of ownership of, you know, the country, because yeah. really they're tearing to bits. Okay. I think we're um, out of uh, time. Sorry, I went top on one there. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, it's a good finale uh, for us, Chaminda. Uh, thank you. Uh, by its nature, Brexit and culture wars in the title leads us into many different issues and many different aspects. And I thank uh, those who sent in questions, but my apologies that I haven't been able to uh, cover so many of them. My thanks to the speaker and thank you for joining us.